Hey guys, it's Stephanie. Before this week's show starts, I wanted to take a moment to let you know that this will be the last episode of The Spark to air on KRFC. I'm thrilled to announce that starting next week, we will be moving to NOCO FM, an exciting new community radio station that can be heard anywhere in the world. The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays exclusively at www.noco.fm. All of us at The Spark want to convey our gratitude and thanks to KRFC for launching our show and for nurturing it these last 13 weeks. Their experience and leadership has been incredible. KRFC will always be our first home, and we wish them well going forward. But sometimes, you just have to take a leap. And in the spirit of igniting the best life for The Spark, we're looking forward to our new partnership with NOCO FM and a future where we can grow together. Again, new episodes of The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, and we hope you'll join us at our new home at www.noco.fm. Life is so freaking simple. We are the ones that overcomplicate it. The clanging of prison bars, a contained single cell. This is where Weldon Long, a once desperate felon, spent 13 years of his life after holding two men at gunpoint during an armed robbery. After a life of poverty, drugs, and debauchery, Weldon had a life-shattering awakening during his time in prison, which altered him internally and his life path forever. From thug to a thriving multi-million dollar business owner, New York Times best-selling author and national presenter, Weldon Long's story is one of personal triumph and hope, and a testament that none of us have to be prisoners of our past. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I am joined today by New York Times best-selling author and one of the nation's most powerful and motivational speakers, Weldon Long. Weldon has had an amazing life and has an amazing story to tell, overcoming a life of desperation, addiction, poverty, and crime to creating a life of spiritual, emotional, and financial abundance. I am thrilled and honored to welcome Weldon Long to The Spark. Welcome, Weldon. Stephanie, thank you so much for having me, and uh, I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, your story is actually a local one. It all happened here in Colorado. Before we get started, for the few listeners that don't know, can you share a little bit of that journey here with us? Uh, starting in 1987, I was 23 years old. Uh, I went to prison for the first time. Uh, I was a high school dropout and just kind of a knucklehead. One night on the east side of Denver out on Colfax, I decided I needed to pawn a shotgun to raise some money for rent and some food. And I found out very quickly that I could not get enough money for rent and food. And so I ended up picking up a hitchhiker and using that shotgun to hold two innocent men at gunpoint on uh, down in Colorado Springs. We drew, had driven from Denver down the Springs, which is where I live now. And I uh, went to the penitentiary, did about four years, got out when I was 27 years old. And I was a ninth grade high school dropout. And I was a convicted felon, so I didn't make it. I fell in with some guys I met in the penitentiary, of course. And I went back to the penitentiary at uh, 27, 28 years old, did a couple of years on gun charges and parole violations, got back out again when I was 30. Now I'm a two-time convicted felon, high school dropout, no skills, no education, no job, no nothing. And I went to, uh, got a job in the telemarketing industry, which I should have been suspicious when they hired me. <laughs> Just like, that's a bad sign. Uh, no background checks, apparently. And it was illegal, of course, and did that for about two years until one day the FBI showed up. 
and uh, went uh, to prison for seven years on federal money laundering and mail fraud indictment. From 1987 until 2003, that 16 year span, I spent 13 of those years walked in prison yards. Obviously, at the end of that cycle, I uh, had some really cool things happen, as you mentioned, the abundance. And uh, But that was kind of the, the obstacle that I was dealing with to get started, kind of put myself a little bit behind the eight ball. You tell this powerful story in your book, The Upside of Fear. And I was sharing with you earlier, I had just listened to that book. And it's it's so powerful in that it's got sound effects. It's very compelling. But there's some really powerful things that happened to you during that process and one one of the markers that stood out for me was when your father passed away. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what happened? Yeah. Yeah, it was June 10th of 1996. I was 32 years old. I had been to state prison twice, and I was just starting my my federal prison term on the telemarketing stuff. And on June 10th of 1996, one of the cops walked in the cell house, says, Mr. Long, you should call home. There's some type of emergency. And so I was, you know, obviously like, okay, what's going on? And I called home and learned that my father had died unexpectedly at 59 years old of a heart attack. I'll never forget, I was on the phone and I heard the news my father died. And the first thing that went through my mind is like, my dad went to his grave with me in the penitentiary again. My father left this earth knowing me as a thief and a crook and a liar. It was pretty overwhelming. You know, it was one of those, um, those moments of clarity, epiphany, whatever you want to call it. It was like, wow, what have I done with my life? And I started thinking a lot about my dad. And I thought back to a conversation that he and I had uh, a few weeks earlier. It was a Sunday afternoon. I called my dad. And uh, my dad always accepted my collect phone calls. Uh, he, he didn't understand my life choices. He was a career military guy. And so he never understood the life choices I made to, to wind up in the penitentiary three times. But he was always trying to support me and encourage me in every way he could. And we're talking on this Sunday afternoon and I'm whining about my life and being back in prison again. And at one point in the conversation, my dad says to me, he says, you know, son, he said, your life could be worse. My dad, how could my life be any worse? I'm a, I'm a ninth grade high school dropout. I'm a three-time convicted felon. I've never had a job, never had a home, never had anything. Uh, the only thing I've managed to accomplish in my life is I had a three-year-old son that I had fathered out on parole and that I had abandoned. I said, Dad, I've abandoned my own flesh and blood, my own son. I'm not a father to my own son. How could my life be any worse? And my dad says to me the words that changed my life. He says, son, he said, you're still breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you've got a shot to change your life. And I didn't really understand the significance of those words and being kind of, I wasn't young, I was 32, but I was still very mature. And I didn't really get what he was saying. And so I'm like, you know, thanks, Dad. Like, thanks for nothing kind of attitude, right? And my father and I exchanged I love yous and I hung up the phone and I never talked to him again. Mm. Two weeks later, he was gone. When he was gone two weeks later, I just, I thought about that conversation. I'm like, I have to change my life. I have to be the son that my father deserved. I have to be the father that my son deserves. And I just kind of saw myself between my son and my father. I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? What have I done to the people I love most? My father, son. And I decided on June 10th of 1996, I was changing the course of my life. And that's kind of where it started. What did you start doing? Because you, you had this amazing transformation in not only the mindset of what you wanted to be, but who you felt that you were. You, you became someone that you truly envisioned. You know, we've all heard the old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? Yeah. And so I made this decision, I'm gonna change the course of my life. I don't care how long it takes, I don't care how much work is involved, I'm gonna make some serious changes here. I had seven years to do in prison. My master plan, right, 
<laughs> I didn't know where to start turning this Titanic of a life around. But my master plan, I came up with this grand scheme to read what really successful people do and do it. That was it. I wasn't going to second guess it. wasn't going to try to reinvent the wheel. I've been kind of a punk and a skeptic and a, actually kind of weird way, kind of judgmental. I mean, I was like the worst of the worst, but I was like judging everybody else. And, and so I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to analyze it. I'm just going to read what successful people do. And I'm going to do that. So this was like within a few hours of my father passing away, by the way. This was like, it all happened very fast mm-hmm. on that day. And so I w- I'm in tears in my cell. I'm just devastated. And I walk out of my cell and I go down to the end of the cell house and there's a, a little uh, closet down there, like a, like a mop closet, right? We kept the cleaning supplies and mops and stuff to clean the, clean the cell house and that type of thing. And there was a big cardboard box in there with books in it. And cops would come in and they would just throw books in the box. And that was our library in this particular housing unit. I was in a, a temporary uh, a detention, federal detention center in Las Vegas. And so we didn't have like a bona fide library. And so I'm going to that book and I'm just looking for something. And I stumble across a copy of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen R. Covey. By the way, his son, Stephen M. R. Covey, is currently writing the forward to my next book. Yeah, he wrote the Stephen M. R. Covey. He's a great man in his own right. I uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Speed of Trust. But anyway, I didn't know the Coveys at the time, of course. I just walk in, I pick up this book, and I take the seven habits back to my cell, and I consume the book. And I read it, and then I read it again. And then I consumed the book, and then eventually the book consumed me. And that book became my roadmap for a successful life. And by the way, not just a successful life, but when I got out, successful businesses, companies. That book changed everything for me, and I began to read that book. And I remember one of the first things, Stephanie, that I read, in the introduction of that book, Dr. Covey says, you are not you know, relegated to living out of your past. You have the option to live out of your imagination. Now, that seems pretty obvious here as a 54-year-old man. Yeah, of course, you know, you're not stuck in your past. Of course, you can let it. But at 32 years old, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, I didn't know that. And so when I read those words, like, wow, I don't have to live out of my past. My past was drugs and violence and crime and prison, but I can live out of my future. Uh, I can live out of my imagination. My imagination is very, very vivid, I promise you. It's part of my mental health problem, I guess. But <laughs> I have a very, I can imagine crazy, crazy stuff. And so... Uh, I started doing that, and that book it changed everything. And then I, I remember reading, uh, I came across a quote, quote from Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, we attract that which we fear. And I thought that was nonsense the first time I read it. So I kind of dismissed it. Like, why would I attract things in my life that I fear? Why would I attract things in my life that I don't want, right? So I kind of ignored it. And then a couple of months later, I was flipping through the Bible. And I, just randomly, a, a scripture in Job. I always love the Proverbs and the Psalms and Job's like in there somewhere. I'm not like a real big Bible guy or anything. But I was like, you know, I was reading everything. I tell people I started the Bible, I finished with Tony Robbins and everything in between because I was desperate. And there was a, a scripture in there where Job says, Father, that which I have feared has come upon me. I'm like, wow, you got Nietzsche on one hand, who's an atheist. Job was a godly man, separated by thousands of years, <laughs> saying the exact yeah. same thing. I'm like, there's got to be something going on. And then I was reading a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, one of my favorites. Yes. Yep. And in that book, Frankl says, fear may come true. I'm like, wow, what do I fear the most in my life? So I sat down at the little metal desk in my prison cell and I started writing out what I feared the most. And you know what I feared the most? Living and dying in the penitentiary, mm. never being a father to my son, being broke, being homeless the rest of my life. What had I attracted into my life? Everything I feared the most. All the chaos in my peanut-sized brain had somehow gotten out and created and manifested itself in my life. I'm like, holy cow, I have created the things I feared the most. 
that was a huge moment for me because I realized that my life was a reflection. As Emerson said, we become what we think about all day long. That was a big moment in my life. And I'm sure as a psychotherapist, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's so screwed up. And you're right. No, <laughs> no I, I think that's so powerful. I mean, when I was listening to that, because I, as I said, I listened to it on audiobook. I mean, I literally actually played that exact section twice. No kidding. No kidding. Because it, it wow. hit me and it resonated with me so strongly um, because I've read Viktor Frankl's book as well, and it was powerful a- for me. And also, you know, I, I deal with a lot of people that, that come into my office, and, and I've struggled with this myself, with the whole what you fear, and then it starts showing up in your life. How powerful that is to help move us through our fear. And, and the other thing you said, too, about, you know, I think you, you don't have to be, you know, when you're 50, all of a sudden, maybe you have some wisdom. But even at 50, sometimes we think, oh, my God, I'm all these decisions that I've made in the past. Right. That that's what defines me. And it's hard to realize, you know, we're who we are today and we can move forward. We can envision a different life for ourselves and we can live that life. It's so powerful. It's such a simple lesson. But you're right. A lot of people go through life and never, never really understand. I read a quote once and I don't have any idea where I read it. Maybe you'll recognize it. But the quote was that far too many people go to their grave with their music still inside of them. And so it's like, I think a lot of people just never, never get it that you can be what you want to be. You can do what you want to do as long as you don't compromise the rights of other people. You don't hurt other people. I mean, you can do anything you want. I speak a lot in the penitentiary now, as you can imagine. In fact, there's there's a program in the federal penitentiary system called Doing Time with the Right Mind. My books and Stephen Covey's books are the curriculum. There's another program called The Power of Consistency, which is the title of my second book, that's currently being taught in the state prison system. The bottom line is, is that you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be as long as you don't compromise the rights of other people. I think that's so cool. When I talk to these guys in the penitentiary, I'm like, guys, there's like three things you can never do again. You can never rob. You can never steal. You can never sell dope, right? You can go camping as often as you want. You can make love to your wife as often as you want. You can take your kids as often as you want. They're never going to throw you in jail for that stuff, right? There's three things you can't do. Stop stealing, stop cheating, stop selling dope and and stop hitting people. Right. You can't you can't rub up on a guy in a bar and, you know, drop him, you know, like a sack of potatoes or whatever. But if we get rid of that violent part of us, one of the things I tell men all the time that men listen, I and this will probably sound a little sexist because I know women do the same thing that men do in many regards. But I think that men are geared to do two things, protect and provide, period. Our job is to protect our family, our loved ones, and provide for them. That's what we have to do. But that part of us as men, the protector part, the part that can be a little scary at times, it can scare us, it can scare people around us. The reality is in the penitentiary, you need that part of your personality a lot for survival. In real life, you need it like maybe once every 10 years, yeah. right? When like somebody comes in your space and like, like somebody's threatening your family, then you got to bow up and you got to be that guy. But you don't have to be that guy every day. It's great to have that part of your personality that can scare the bejesus out of people, right? And that can do what you got to do. But you don't have to be that guy very often. And I think I think it's such a tough lesson for men to learn. I'm sure women have the same type of struggles. I don't know. You can comment on that as a woman. But, man, I'm just telling you, it's like it's so simple. Life is so freaking simple. We are the ones that overcomplicate it. Absolutely. Well, and I think that I think I don't think you're being sexist at all. I, I do think men are hardwired to be the protectors and the providers. I think that's absolutely normal. 
Women are the nurturers, you know, that's, they're the connectors. If you told me I was a sexist, I was into the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not a sexist, but I'm kind of traditional in that, 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 that women and men are different. Like the neurology is different. The chemicals. Right, right, right. Exactly. I think, I mean, we absolutely have to accept that that's, that's reality. We are. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, so it's that heightened, I imagine in prison, that heightened fight or flight. It, it's like you're mm-hmm. on hyper alert constantly. So you you yeah. you are in that environment where naturally, like you're talking about, that protector, that puffed out chest, that you have to be. It's got to be. It's because you it's have survival. to protect your. Yeah, it's like and that fight can't or be flight. healthy. Yeah, that can't be healthy, by the way, because I've read no. that like the, the cortisol, whatever, in your system when you're stressed. Yeah. So when you're in prison, and by the way, this is true for prison guards too. Prison guards. That's one of the toughest jobs. I have a very good friend of mine who's the retired deputy director of the State Department of Corrections. We've become wonderful friends, and we're working on some nonprofit stuff together. And we talk about this all the time, that it's very stressful to be in prison. And I know this interview wasn't about prison. I don't want to go on that road. We didn't talk about the abundance and all the crazy stuff. That's no, happening. but this is important. But yeah, but prison guards have the toughest job. Think about this, Stephanie. You take your average beat cop on an eight or 10 hour shift. He might come into contact with a dangerous person once or twice in that eight hours. Some, he might go a week without really coming into contact with dangerous people. A prison cop, a prison cop is surrounded and facing, you know, dangerous people nonstop that entire shift. The rate of alcoholism, drug addiction, suicide, and short lives is the same for, for prison cops as it is for convicts. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Think about it. Well, yeah, it's and that makes sense. Job. It'd be absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely I mean, you're terrifying. always looking over your back. As a convict or a cop, you're always looking over your back, over well, your shoulder. So I mixed my metaphor. I learned that from you, by the way. <laughs> Mixed metaphor. <laughs> One of the things we were talking about are, so that, like you just made reference to, so there were you know, some specific ingredients to your success. You know, like you talk about visualization, the law of attraction. Talk a little bit about what, what were some of the essential pieces, the ingredients to this recipe of success for you? Once I realized that all the chaos in my mind was creating my life, it occurred to me that... I needed to change what I was thinking about. So I sat down at that same metal desk, by the way, in my prison cell. I wish I had a copy of one of my books here with me. I'd probably do somewhere in the house. But I sat down and I had written out all the stuff I'm afraid of, which I had created. Then I sat down and said, okay, what would an awesome, perfect life for me look like? What would that be? The first thing I wrote down on the sheet of paper is I'm an awesome father to my son. That was like the first thing because that was the most important thing. Then I started like doing the fun stuff, like I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I was making 50 cents a day in the penitentiary at the time. Uh, I have a beautiful home on the beaches of Maui. I have a beautiful home in Colorado. Uh, I have a beautiful wife. I, I'm a man of honor, character. I wrote all these crazy things out. If you had been my celly back in those days, which would have been awkward, but if you had been my celly <laughs> and you saw that list, you'd have thought, wow, you're like a madman. You're a ninth grade high school dropout, a three-time convicted felon. You've never had a job. You've never had a career. You've never had a home. And you think you're going to have this crazy life? It was like completely irrational for me to think about the stuff I was thinking. So I took that list and I put toothpaste on the back four corners of that sheet of paper. And I stuck it on the wall of my cell. And every day I began to read that list. I would visualize it. I would imagine being that person, having that life. What I didn't realize at that time that I was literally changing the neural connectors in my brain. In The Power of Consistency, I talk about this study I read about in one of John Ashraf's books. 
John Ashraf wrote a book uh, a number of years back called The Answer, and it's a fantastic book. And it tells the story of these NASA astronauts that were put in this mock-up spacecraft. The scientists, the, the powers that be, wanted them to get to be able to operate the, the switches and the computers from any perspective. So they put goggles on them that inverted their vision 180 degrees. They had to look at everything upside down and learn, and they had to live in that spacecraft for weeks on end, just like if they were in space. After about three and a half weeks, about 25 days, one of the astronauts goes to the researchers and says, hey, my vision is corrected. They're like, that's impossible. And within three or four days, every astronaut in the study experienced the same phenomenon. Their vision was corrected. And, and what they found out eventually is it took the brain about 25 to 30 days for the brain to carve new neural connectors, new neural pathways to correct the vision. Because the brain, the body, knew where gravity really was, right? They weren't in space. They were in a mock spacecraft on, on Earth. And so the brain, it took the brain about 25 days to catch up with what was going on in their life. Now, how many times have you heard in, in, in your audience, how many times have we heard that it takes about 25 or 30 days for a habit to be formed? It's because exactly. it takes the brain about 25 days. So what I didn't realize sitting in the prison in 19, this was 1996, 22 years ago, it seems like a lifetime ago. It's unbelievable. It's been that long. But what I didn't realize was happening is that my brain was carving new neural connectors and that those things on that sheet of paper on the cell, on the, on the wall of the cell, became my new expectations. And I, I was, as I would visualize and meditate and, 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 and imagine, you know, and Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill says, imagine yourself already in possession of these things. It's such a powerful part. You have to get emotionally connected. Like these things you want have to be like another strand of your DNA. And so I would just like, oh, I would just visualize it. I would just like get lost in these daydreams about being that guy, about having that life. And it changed my brain. It changed my brain, Stephanie. And I know as a, this is your profession, right? And so you understand that, but it changed my brain. So seven years later, when I heard that gravel under my feet, when they opened that gate, there was a completely different expectation for me. Listen, I had been released from prison twice before. What do you think the first thing I said to myself when I walked out of prison the first two times? What do you think I said? I'm not coming back in here. Never coming back to this place. Yeah. This sucks. I'm yeah. never going back to prison. So what happened is I was at a point where like the first two times I wanted a different result. I didn't want to go back to prison. If I want a different result, I have to have different behaviors, correct? Yes. So I'm like, okay, I got to change my behaviors. I got to quit pulling guns on people. I got to quit stealing stuff. I got to make better decisions, different behaviors. But I stopped right there. That was as far as I went. I didn't realize that the emotions and the thoughts were the things driving those behaviors. So what happened after a short period of time, I would eventually kind of fall back into, into the, the, the way of thinking Mm -hmm. that put me there. Einstein said, you cannot fix a problem at the same level of thinking that created the problem. So I tried to change my behaviors without changing my thinking. And that was an exercise in futility, right? Right. So what I've learned is that if people want temporary change, and this is true for their business, because I do a lot of speaking, my books are primarily around the business. And, you know, I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and salespeople and, you know, business people. I don't do a lot in the field of just like personal development, although I should probably do more of that stuff because it's all the same thing, right? Yeah. So what I've learned is that if you want temporary change in your life, in your business, change your behaviors. If you want permanent change, you got to change your thoughts because the thoughts are the foundation of all of it. When I permanently change my thoughts, 
I permanently change my emotions. Once you change your emotions, you change your behaviors. When you change your behaviors, you change your results. It's not rocket science. Well, and ironically, it literally is cognitive behavioral therapy. That is the premise of that cognitive so behavioral therapy. Funny you said that, right? Because that was like Albert Ellis, right? Wasn't he yeah. like the guy? So, he, so let me tell you this funny story. Side note. In 2012 or 2013, I can't remember now, but when The Power of Consistency came out, it hit number five on New York Times and number two in the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. And it was a big deal for me. And so I get a call from a guy named Ed Nottingham. Ed is a PhD, a clinical psychologist, right? He's a very, very smart guy. He works for FedEx. And he goes around the world for FedEx, right? FedEx is everywhere, right? You can go to like BFE China, right? And there's like a little dude there with a rickshaw delivering FedEx packages. FedEx is everywhere. Holy global, cow. Right? And Ed goes around the world and teaches the mindset to FedEx leadership. So Ed gets a hold of me, and I, I don't remember how it happened, but he called the office. We had this conversation, and Ed tells me, he says, Mr. Long, I got to tell you, this book, The Power of Consistency, it is the simplest explanation of the neuroscience behind our decision-making and the principles that are the underpinnings of rationally motive behavior therapy I've ever read in my life. And I'm like, there, there's a name for this? I mean, you know, I'm a simple guy with 103 IQ, right? And he's like, there's so much science behind this. So we've become great friends. And that's how FedEx became a client, actually. And now, this is so crazy, they have a program in FedEx called the Purple Pipeline. It's their leadership development program. It's a one-year leadership development program. The Power of Consistency, the book written by a ninth-grade high school dropout with 103 IQ, is part of the curriculum. They spend one week working on the Power of Consistency. They have to do their prosperity plans. They have to understand the whole. And then they have neuroscientists like Ed come in and discuss the science behind what I, what I write about, what I teach. And it's such a trip. And so once a year, when they go to that program every year, we have a huge here in Colorado Springs, we have a huge FedEx IT facility, one of their biggest in the country. And so as part of their journey on this one year development program, they bring them here ostensibly to teach, to tour the, tour the IT facility. What they don't know is they're going to spend a half a day with me. And so I get to come in after they've been studying the book and, and they meet with them. It's, it's awesome. It's testament, too, that wisdom isn't contained in an IQ. I mean, your IQ, not, I mean, I'm not cutting you down. It means nothing, though. It means nothing. You are Thank wise. God for me. I mean, you know. Hey, listen, sister, listen. I'm a product of hard work and focus. I am not a product of brilliance or intelligence. Stephen Jobs, before he passed away, was asked, to what do you attribute your success? You know, he said, he didn't say brilliance. He didn't say creativity. He said focus and simplicity. And I am the essence of those two things. In fact, I think the reason my books are successful is because I take seemingly complex concepts and distill them down to this, the basic stuff that, that the average person like me can understand, which I had to do for me to understand it because I don't have like 140 IQ like you do. But most you're of us need you're that. A Mensa girl. You're a Mensa girl, I bet. Right? No. <laughs> no. But, but most of us, most of us truly, we need things that we can just relate to, too. A lot of people can't sit in a room and relate to all these, you know, all this terminology in, in neuroscience. You know, exactly. we, we want to just know, how can we change our lives? How do, how do I change my thoughts? How do I change my life? How can I live what I dream? And that's what you're helping people to do. Yeah. You know, life is kind of a cruel hoax, right? If you're fortunate, you live to be 80 or 85 years old with a healthy brain and a healthy body. Uh, my mother is 81, has a very healthy body, but her you know, her mind is starting to wander a little bit. 
and it's heartbreaking to watch. I just went up to see her a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's just, it's just life, right? But here's the thing, and you tell me if I'm wrong. How long does it take to figure life out? Your whole life. Yeah. It takes a long time. I figure like at least 40 years, but it takes a long time to figure out relationships. It takes a long time to figure out money and saving and investing. It takes a long time to figure out what's important in your health, right? Because when you're a kid, you're eating pizza, you don't thinking about that stuff. And then you're 40 years old. It was funny because I was down, my brother, one of my brothers lives in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, at University of Alabama. He's a big Alabama fan. And my other brother and myself were LSU fans because we were raised in Louisiana. And uh, so we went to Tuscaloosa last year to see the Alabama LSU game. And so my, one of my brothers and, and I, we flew into Birmingham and my other brother came over from Tuscaloosa and picked us up. We're driving the hour drive from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa. And it's like, we're like, so yeah, I went to see the cardiologist and he said my such and such score was good and my blood pressure is good or my blood pressure is bad. And I'm on this medication. I'm on that medication. And it's like a half an hour goes by. My guys, what the hell happened to us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when did we all get old that we're, we're not talking about like, oh man, I can't wait to meet these hotties at the football game or whatever. We're talking about <laughs> our health, but it's like, it takes like into your late forties, maybe probably in your fifties before you really start thinking about your health. Like, I got to lose a couple of pounds. I got to get my blood pressure down, whatever that situation is. So it takes 40 or 50 years to figure out what the hell's going on in life. And by then, you're halfway through the game, over halfway. You're halfway to the end game. I tell people all the time, it blows me away. I'm in the last one third of my life. I'm 54 years old. If I'm fortunate, I got 25, 30 more years. I'm in the last third of my life. It's mind boggling. I met Wayne Dyer once, and I'm sure you know Wayne. I actually, I met him once as well. One of his books, one of his books, several of his books, but Real Magic was the one that really had an impact on me. So I'm in in Maui a few years ago, and I get a chance to meet him. He lived on Maui before he passed away, and I had a house out there for a number of years. And so I meet Wayne, and Wayne, you know what Wayne said to me? He said, when you die, you never come back. When you die, you never come back. You never get that last conversation with your kid. You never get that last walk on the beach with your spouse. There's no do-overs. Right. And it was something about the finality of what he said that just like blew my mind. You never come back. So here's the, here's the conundrum. It takes 40 or 50 years to figure out what's going on in life with women, with money, with men, with health. By then, you're in the last third of your life. You've got to get stuff done. You've heard the expression baby steps. Baby steps are for babies. Slow and steady doesn't win the race. Slow and steady gets your ass beat. That's it. By the time you're 40 or 50 years old, when you're contemplating your life, relationships, happiness, all these different things, it's like, I don't have time to mess around. I got to get stuff done. I need, you know, transformational stuff happening in my life. And I think sometimes we go through this life and we think like it's just going to last forever. I know you're a young woman. You have half your life left, right? (laughs) But old timers like me, it's like, are you kidding me? There's a third left. No, but I'm I'm hearing it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to squander it. I'm going to waste it. I'm going to like, I'm going to be happy when no, I'm going to have a blast every single day. Now, I don't care what it is. If it's a radio interview, if I'm in, you know, someplace speaking, it doesn't matter. One of the things I've learned, and I know I'm talking way too much, but I'm just like on this roll right now. 
But one of the things I've learned, Stephanie, and I know you know this as a, as a psychotherapist, right? Because this is your profession. The most successful people on the planet live in the present moment, right? Absolutely. We're the losers. Think about the biggest loser we know. The most unhappy, miserable SOB, where do they spend their consciousness talking about what? Past. The past. I'm angry at the ex-wife. I'm angry at the ex-boss. I can't believe this happened. I can't believe that happened. And then we got the neurotics, right? Where do the neurotics live their life? Future. Anxious. Oh, my God. What happens if this happens? What happens if she leaves me? What happens if business fails next week? Right? So you've got neurotics living in the future. You've got losers living in the past. Where do winners live? Of course, right here in the present. Right here. The only place we can fix any of it, right? Well, and, and I have to interject really quickly. That's one of the things that Wayne Dyer said, too, that, that I just love is the only place we can meet, whatever your concept of God is, is in the present moment. Whatever that is, because it's this but, connection, right? It's, it's this conversation. It's whatever we're doing, tapping into that. There are a few times in life where the present really sucks. Like if you're getting attacked in that moment, fear and hurt and resentment and anger is really existing. But in, in our lives, how, how often does that actually happen? Right. Not very, right? And they're moments. They're fleeting moments. Moments. Fleeting moments, right? But what do we do as human beings? We just like drag that stuff along. So think about this for a second. We got the losers that live in the past. We got the neurotics living in the future. We've got healthy people living in the present moment. But you make a living because, and I do too, honestly. I mean, I'm not educated like you, and I don't like I'm like a professional, you know, psychotherapist, but I, I I'm successful with people because I get them to live in the present moment. Let's I understand you got mommy issues. I get it, but let's leave that there. And today you don't have mommy issues. Today, all your mommy issues are in your head because she's dead and gone. Sometimes mommy issues can be like a hand from the grave, right? Because it's like, let's do an, an exercise for your audience right here. So there are people out there in your audience right now. There are some of them who are really hurting over some previous bad thing that happened, right? Somebody betrayed and Listen, we've all been betrayed. We've all been hurt. We've all been kicked in the teeth. Nobody gets out alive. I get it. But there are people in your audience right now that are hurt over something from the past, divorce, a bankruptcy, something bad happened. Someone was molested. Someone, some, I mean, someone was yelled at to by their parents. I mean, listen, a lot of people raised kids that had no business raising children. So we got people living there and we have people in your audience today that are scared to death of something that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not going to have enough money. I'm not going to be loved whatever the BS is. Right. So think about this for a second. When I say go, we're going to do a 15 second exercise, completely wasted air time. I get it. <laughs> right. So what I want your audience to do is to pick something up. I'm holding a cell phone in my hand right here. And I want you to do this exercise too, Stephanie. You pick up any item, a cup of coffee, glass of water, your cell phone. And for 15 seconds, describe that item in your hand in like painstaking detail. The color, the contour, the shape, the temperature of it. Describe that item in your hand in painstaking detail for 15 seconds. Just like if there's writing on it, like every letter, every word, focus on that and describe everything on that item in your hand in excruciating detail for 15 seconds. Ready? Go. Okay. Now, during those 15 seconds, where was our consciousness, past, present, or future? In the now. During that 15 seconds, 
our consciousness was completely in the present moment, correct? During those 15 seconds, was there any hurt? Was there any anger? Was there any fear? Was there any anxiety over the future? Nothing. Because during those 15 seconds, we were completely absorbed in the present moment. And as you suggested earlier, there is no fear, no anxiety, no worry in the present moment. It's all projected out there. Right. So the key is to learn to live in that present moment. That's a, a huge part of what I've learned. It's like made my life worth living. I think it was Socrates who said an unexamined life is not worth living, right? So we got to take the time to like figure out what the heck are we doing? Hey guys, it's Stephanie. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that this will be the last episode of The Spark to air on KRFC. I'm thrilled to announce that starting next week, we will be moving to NOCO FM, an exciting new community radio station that can be heard anywhere in the world. The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays exclusively at www.noco.fm. All of us at The Spark want to convey our gratitude and thanks to KRFC for launching our show and for nurturing it these last 13 weeks. Their experience and leadership has been incredible. KRFC will always be our first home, and we wish them well going forward. But sometimes, you just have to take a leap. And in the spirit of igniting the best life for The Spark, we're looking forward to our new partnership with NOCO FM and a future where we can grow together. Again, new episodes of The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, and we hope you'll join us at our new home at www.noco.fm. Well, and one of the things that I talk to my clients a lot about that I think really dovetails what you're saying, too, is, you know, a lot of people, you know, worry about the what ifs. What if this happens in the future? What if that happens? The reality is if we're in the now and we're not worrying about the future, we're going to be so much better prepared for whatever inevitable challenges come our way, than if we're all ratcheted up and trying to deal with it at a Mach 10, <laughs> you know, then it's freak out. So it's much it. better, right, to be... Sister. Raise the roof. <laughs> no, you're dead on. You know, a lot of what you're saying, so I love it. I mean, and, and it really is in line with my own philosophy and, and a lot of what I work with with my clients. For one thing, you know, you talk about the law of attraction and really writing down, I think it's important to know what your fears are because a lot of times they're just unconscious and just rolling around in our brains. Yeah. Like you said, you wrote down the things you were afraid of and then what you want to create in your life. Yeah. And really making that a focus and visioning that and then not just reading the list, but feeling it, making it an emotional experience. So you're yeah. encompassing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you talk about law of attraction, obviously the secret comes to mind and the secret's a powerful, powerful book. Uh, however, I think one of the things that is not discussed enough around the law of attraction is the, the action part, right? Yes. And so when we talk about the upside of fear, and I talk about this a lot in the power of consistency, that is the upside of fear, the way I look at fear, it's, it's an acronym, right? For focus, emotional commitment, action, and responsibility. And those four steps, I've developed programs around 
how do I look inside what I call the box, right? The mind is a box. If I have a, a box of motorcycle parts, I've got this crate and everything in there is a motorcycle part, right? The engine, the frame, the wheels. And I remove the components of that motorcycle piece by piece, component by component. And I assemble the parts, you know, appropriately or properly. When I'm done and I step back to, to like look at this, admire this beautiful mechanical creation, it's going to be a motorcycle, right? I'm not going to accidentally bake a cake. I'm not going to accidentally build something else out of a motorcycle, right? Right. Whatever's in the box is all that we can build. Well, that box is a metaphor for the mind. I believe our life and its component form is already in our head. Mm-hmm. Our money, there's three issues in life that matter. Your money, your relationships, and your health. Nothing else matters. Your money is your career path, your financial security, all those things for your for your present, for your future financial security, your relationships, your, your, your family, your friends, your community, and your health is your mental, spiritual, and physical health. Tell me what else there is to life besides those three things. Nothing that matters. Right? Everything else, everything else is distraction. Everything about our life, our money, our relationships, our health, they're already in here in our brain. And every day we go through life and we make what I call seemingly inconsequential decisions. Little tiny decisions that don't mean squat. But every time you make one of those decisions, you pull out a little piece of your life. So if I get a paycheck Friday, I got to make a decision. Do I spend all this paycheck or do I save 10% of it? Well, let me reach in the box and find out. Everybody has different decisions about money. If I reach in that box and I pull out the decision to blow it all, I pull out a little piece of my financial life. If I reach in that box and I pull out, I'm going to save 10% of it, I pull out a different financial reality, right? If you get in an argument with your husband tonight, I get into an argument with my wife tonight, I got to make a choice. How am I going to conduct myself? Let me reach in the box and find out. If I reach in that box and I pull out fear and intimidation and yelling, I pull out a piece of that relationship, don't I? On the other hand, if I reach in that box, I pull out some love and some patience and some understanding. I pull out a different relationship, don't I? So life is not like some accidental thing. Now, listen, I'm not saying that bad things don't happen to good people. It it happens, right? I live by a simple acronym called CPA. I cause, permit, or allow everything in my life to happen. I'm never a victim. I'm never at the mercy of jack squat. Now, I realize that there are people in your audience that will that have experienced things that were that were not they did not cause they did not permit they did not and I understand that I get that completely, but here's the point: I would rather take the risk of accepting responsibility for something that I'm not responsible for, than take the chance of not accepting responsibility for something I should be responsible for. You see what I'm saying? Say that one because, more time. Say the ending so, one more time. So I would rather take the chance if I if I adopt the philosophy which I have in my life that I cause, permit, or allow everything in my life to happen. I would rather take that risk that I might accept responsibility for something that's not my fault than to take the chance of not accepting responsibility for something I should have taken, right? In other words, so if I get hit by a car on the interstate, my thought is, what did I do to allow that to happen? And so is it really my fault the guy hit me in the the lane next? No, probably not. But at least if I take responsibility, I can fix the situation. I can address the situation and solve it if I take responsibility. I mean, think about this for a second. If my life is a reflection of what other people are doing to me, and I don't like the status of my life, I don't like where I am right now, then that means that I have to hope the people around me start doing better. <laughs> they, start, they start treating me better. They start doing what they're supposed to do. But if I take the, the philosophy, if I take the mindset that, that my life is my responsibility, then I can fix it. If I'm, if I'm saying that I'm a victim of 
bad parenting or bad this or bad that, then I have to hope those things around me change. And as Viktor Frankl, you and I discussed the man search for meaning earlier, Viktor Frankl said, when, when you can no longer change the things around you, you were left with the only option was to change yourself, take responsibility. And so we pull our life out of our box, out of our mind, right? Our money, our relationships, everything. And so the power of consistency, that whole book, and, and part of the upside of fear, which you've read, uh, is about that fear process, focus, emotional commitment, action, responsibility, which allows us, it's a simple process to go through and examine the contents of our box. What's in the box? If I don't like what's in there, then I can change it, right? But you have to examine, again, Socrates, an unexamined life is not worth living. You have to look into your box. You know, look into your mind. Where do those ideas and thoughts come from? Probably they came, I mean, when you come in this planet, you come in with a clean slate, right? You're a baby. And then your box starts getting filled up with whatever from other people, mm. from media, from books, from parents, from brothers and sisters, whatever, society. And then we're 18 years old and we have this set of beliefs, right or wrong, and we start pulling those beliefs back out of our brain. Our emotions and our actions are almost always a reflection of our thoughts. That's the good news. The bad news is the emotions and the actions are a reflection of the thoughts, even if the thought is wrong. Exactly. Or inaccurate. So we create results in our life on BS. And what's interesting is it doesn't even have to be that big of a situation. I mean, we have false beliefs constantly if we're not monitoring them, if we're not watching them. It literally right. can be as simple as we're misreading our partner or we're misreading something else and our mind fires off that exact same right. danger because of exactly. what somebody says, and we're ready to fight. We're ready to drop them, exactly. so to speak. So going back to kind of, I, I think one of the things, you say you're uneducated, but you're not. You have a, a bachelor's degree in law and right. an MBA in marketing. Management. Management. Business management, yeah. Okay. So when, I, when my dad died in 96 and I decided I needed to change my life, one of those things I had to fix was education, lack of education. So I had gotten my GED previously. Then I, I uh, enrolled in a, in a school in California that my grandmother and my mother paid for, like 25 bucks a month they would send them. And the school was so cool. It was Southern California University. And they said, we'll let you go for as many years as you need to. You have to buy your books, pay us 25 bucks a month, and then pay us when you get out or you'll, we'll get your degrees. So this went on for seven years. And uh, I worked on all that stuff. And then when I got out, right when I got out, my grandmother passed away. Mm. And she was not a wealthy lady, but she left all the grandkids a couple of bucks. And so I took my money and paid off all my tuition. That's cool. And so I got those degrees. But, but the 103 IQ part is true. I've been to prison three times. And uh, one of the things that happens when you go to prison, they put you through a battery of tests, right? Academic, psychological, whatever. And one of those tests is an IQ test. And I always get, you know, scored out like 103, 104, whatever. And I think it's because there's a mechanical aptitude as part of the IQ test. I don't really understand it. You probably do because it's your thing. But there's a mechanical aptitude part of this test that's like so freaking unfair. It's like it takes like an image or like a design, like origami, and it lays it out flat. And there's like dotted lines where you're supposed to fold it. But you have to look at it flat and then decide what it would look like when it's done. And I have no, I have zero mechanical aptitude. Wow. And so I failed that part. It always scored me on just pretty dumb. But, you know, listen, again, I don't think it's about being smart. I think it's about hustle. I think it's about hard work and focus, right? Focus and simplicity. That's what Stephen Jobs said. It was good enough for Stephen Jobs, good enough for me. You know? Well, and you've done that. And, and so talk about what happened when you got out of prison, because you took the stuff we've been talking about, you changed your thoughts, you changed your feelings, you changed your actions. 
It reminds me of like Tony Robbins talks about, well, if you, you know, stand around all day and you just kind of yell at your garden, like, you know, there's no <laughs> weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds. You got to actually go and pull them. You got to right? take action. That's one of the things I learned from Tony. He actually endorsed my first book. One of the things he said is uh, in his endorsement is congratulations on your turnaround from prison to contribution. And uh, I thought that was very poignant that he mentioned contribution. Uh, but you're right. Uh, Tony talks about taking massive action. And that, I'm a huge advocate of action. So you have to take consistent action with the stuff that you want to do. So I get out of the joint in January of 2003. I just, I'm a man of mission. My seven years of reprogramming this noggin and changing the contents of the box. I came out and it took me six months to find a job. I'm out there from January to uh, July of 2003. And I'm a ninth grade high school dropout. Yes, I had the prison degrees as I called them, right? But they were from a legit school, kind of a University of Phoenix type deal in California. You know, no practical experience. I'm 39 years old. I'm living in a homeless shelter. I got nothing. And I'm knocking on doors for six months, but I had such a determination to succeed. What was driving me at that point was a 10-year-old son that I needed to find. His mother was on her way to jail, and he was living with a family member of, of, on her side of the family. And so my thing was to get my kid. I couldn't get my kid until I got a job and got a place to live. So I went out there for six months. I'm knocking on doors, and finally one day I find a job. And so I walk in this heating and air conditioning company. The guy's like, I have zero mechanical skills. But he said, can you sell air conditioners? I'm like, yes, I can sell stuff. And I went out, Stephanie, my first month, hungry and desperate, like you can't imagine it. I'm living in a halfway house. I've got an ankle bracelet on my foot. And uh, I sell $149,000 of air conditioners and made like 14 grand in sales commissions. That's awesome. And so the irony is, is today, 15 years later, that was 2003, 15 years later, I'm considered one of the the nation's leading experts uh, for manufacturers and distributors of heating and air conditioning equipment to sell that stuff. And I don't know the first thing about it. <laughs> I know anything about it, which, you know, it's, it's about the communication side, which is where I've developed some skills. So anyway, so I got out and I got that job a year later. I'm like, I'm opening my own company. And within five years, grew up to $20 million in revenue became, uh, we were in 2009, we were listed as one of Inc, Inc, uh, Inc. magazine's uh, fastest growing companies in America. And I sold that company and started writing books and speaking. And it's just been like this, just like incredible, like crazy, crazy path since then. What's so cool is it's like you accomplished those dreams that you had originally, you know, envisioned. And then it just keeps expanding. You just keep fulfilling those. It sounds like larger and larger. One of the things that I, uh, one of the first things I learned in, this, in the seven habits of highly effective people, Stephen Covey, Dr. Covey talks about the seven habits of your circle of influence versus your circle of concern. He talks about many people spend their time in their circle of concern. In other words, worrying about things over which they have no control. The circle of influence is to concern yourself with things over which you have control. So I'm reading this in a prison cell. And I remember thinking my circle of influence is about the size of a head of a pen. I couldn't decide when I ate. I didn't decide when the lights came on or off. I didn't decide when I exercised. I had no control. I had forsaken all of my control of my life to the government because of the decisions I had made. And I'm reading Dr. Covey, and he said, if you stay focused on your circle of influence, no matter how small that is, it will gradually expand. I didn't second guess it. I just did it. So I focused on my circle of influence, which is what? My decisions, my choices. That's all that I could get, my thoughts. That's the only thing I could control in prison. Little by little, though, my circle of influence began to expand. And recently, I'm looking here at a, a copy of The Upside of Fear that was published in South Korea. Uh, we just released The Power of Consistency in Israel, in Hebrew. And so the circle of influence has grown, and I, I focus on one thing. I never concern myself with things beyond my control. 
If it's out here, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what, what people say about me. It doesn't matter what they do. If it's if I can't fix the situation, right? Was I think it was Emerson or Thoreau, one of those guys that used a lot of prepositions. They said, regret calamity only if you can thereby help the suffering. I don't worry about other people's problems unless I can help them, then I get really involved. But if I can't help you, don't tell me about a problem that I can't help you with. Don't tell me about a problem you're not trying to fix. I stay focused on this beam of stuff that I'm trying to do. And that to me has been the biggest part of my success. It's a circle of influence. Winners live in the circle of influence. When you decide you want something, Dr. Covey used to call it the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe, right? When you write something down, and as Napoleon Hill said, imagine yourself already in possession of it. You visualize it, you embrace it. There's something crazy that happens, right? I mean, I believe like, you know, radio waves, you're in a radio station right now, right? There are radio waves in my office right now, but I don't hear any music. But if I tuned into that frequency, I could hear the music, correct? Mm -hmm. I think brainwaves, thoughts the same way. They're like out there resonating. And sometimes you're in the same frequency with a person, and you connect. It's like you think of a friend and they call, right? right? That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's something about writing things down. I did an event with Ray Lewis, the uh, Hall of Famer football player, a couple of months ago. And he just talked about there's something special about writing things down. And like seeing that pen on paper, and it brings it to life. It's the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe. And so my point is, you don't have to know how things are going to happen. You just have to know they're going to happen. The how will work itself out. If you just stay for focused, as Lao Tzu famously said, 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, whatever it was, a thousand mile journey is a single step, right? Starts the single step. That's what you got to do. It's just the first thing. Action. Action. I know we've gone over time here, so. Well, this, this is this is perfect and, and such a powerful message and I think exactly what our listeners need to hear. So really quick, I want to mention your new book coming out. What's the new book? Yes. The new book is called Consistency Selling. It's a book for salespeople. Uh, a lot of the work that I do with respect to the mindset is about uh, business people, entrepreneurs, salespeople. And so this book is taking the principles of consistency and applying them to the sales profession and how we have to do execute the same process on a consistent basis. And also uh, uh, a very brilliant man, Robert Cialdini at uh, University of uh, Arizona State. He's the, the psychology guy down there. And he, he developed a, a whole line of work around the power of consistency or the, the, the principle of consistency, the public declarations dictate future actions. We tend to take actions consistent with our words. So I wrote a book around how that can be applied in the sales profession. So the, the consistency selling, my last book was The Power of Consistency. My first book, as you've referenced a couple of times, is The Upside of Fear. And I got another book, and I think I'm going to do it with you. All right. I'm ready. I can't, I can't talk about this publicly, but I got a book that's going to be a perfect project for you. Okay. I'm ready. We'll, we'll talk about it after the show. <laughs> So I can't thank you enough. Uh, this has just been such an awesome interview, and I've just loved chatting with you and connecting with you. It's been fun. How can people find out more about you? Well, they can connect on social media, Weldon Long, or just my website, WeldonLong.com. Easy peasy. Talking with Weldon Long was a powerful, inspiring, and deeply meaningful conversation. I was so moved by his internal transformation 
and the many things that impacted his journey. One of his messages that really resonated with me was about the power we have internally. Even when we can't control our outer circumstances, we can control our inner experience. By using the powerful tools of information, affirmation, and visualization, Weldon was able to change his thinking, his emotions, then his actions, and then his life. He developed an inner integrity and became aligned with his true essence, and through that has touched hundreds of thousands of people through his message of hope and transformation. We too can develop this inner self of right thought, positive emotions, and positive actions. You do have the power to change your life. Weldon has shown us, through the power of consistency, we can do just that. Remember, The Spark is your show, too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Starting next week, we will be moving to NOCO FM, an exciting new community radio station that can be heard anywhere in the world. The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays exclusively at www.noco.fm. All of us at The Spark want to convey our gratitude and thanks to KRFC for launching our show and for nurturing it these last 13 weeks. Their experience and leadership has been incredible. KRFC will always be our first home, and we wish them well going forward. But sometimes, you just have to take a leap. And in the spirit of igniting the best life for the spark, we're looking forward to our new partnership with NOCO FM and a future where we can grow together. Again, new episodes of The Spark will continue to air at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, and we hope you'll join us at our new home at www.noco.fm. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.